ChoosCast is part of the Fire and Water Network. Hello? Sam? Are you Sam? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. he's here. Someone named Vicky. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, she knows you're here. I told her you're here. Now, look. I'm sorry, I was wrong. He had to step out. Where? Well, um, I think what happened is he, uh, he had to... He had to go to mime class. <laughs> yes, yes, I'll, I'll take a message. You're welcome. Well? You're a magnificent pagan beast. Thanks, what's the message? <laughs> now listen, I didn't like doing that. I'm sorry. If I didn't uh, own this place, I'd fire me on the spot. Tell you what, for lying for me, I'll uh, buy you your first drink. Oh, I'd like a bottle of your best champagne. It wasn't that great a lie. (laughs) Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. Our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Welcome to the first episode of Cheers Cast, the podcast where everybody knows your name, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, or head bartender, if you will, Ryan Daly, and this podcast is going to cover episode by episode my favorite TV show of all time, Cheers. And because Cheers was so much about the group, the gang, the work family ensemble, I needed no less than three powerhouse guests to join me on this episode. First is the man with the largest tab on the Fire and Water Network. He drops as many new shows in a week as Norm Peterson drinks beer in an hour. Oh, who am I kidding? He is way too healthy to be the norm of this group. He's a lot more like Carla in temperament. The host of MASHcast and some other stuff, Rob Kelly, everyone. How's it going, Rob? Good. I heard that the uh, Patriots got a linebacker. Uh, next is a friend of the network who has been a sort of coach to me in the past. He has pulled me through some dark times. He also knows Oscar trivia like Cliff Clavin knows postal codes. My buddy, Omar Yudin. What's up, Omar? I, too, read a book once. <laughs> and finally, another friend of the network who co-hosts Radio vs. the Martians and Podcast La Vista Baby, uh, I don't know anything about his level of education, but to listen to him certainly sounds like he's had as many majors in college as Diane did. Please welcome Mike Gillis. Hello, Mike. 
Oh, hey, good to be here. Thank you, all of you, for being here on this episode. I am so happy to have you. But before going any further, just in case someone is listening and has no idea what the show we're talking about is, Cheers was a half-hour sitcom created by writers Glenn and Les Charles and director James Burroughs. Set in a bar of the same name in Boston, Massachusetts, Cheers revolved around the bar's owner, Sam Malone, his staff, and his regular customers, as well as their comedic or frequently disastrous love lives. On Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, September 30th, 1982, America tuned into NBC to watch the premiere episode of Cheers. Or rather, they didn't. Depending on which source you check, out of the 77 shows that aired on television that week, Cheers ranked 74th, 76th, or 77th dead last, which means only a few more people watched the premiere when it aired than are on this podcast right now. (laughs) Eventually, though, the show found its audience and avoided cancellation. By the end of the first season, it even picked up a couple of awards. Cheers would go on to run for 11 seasons and around 275 episodes, finally coming to a close in 1993, 25 years ago. Before we talk about the pilot, guys, let's go around and get everyone's bar story. How and when did you discover Cheers? What did it mean to you? What is so special about it that you think it merits a podcast, assuming I'm not just wasting my time? Rob, what's your story? Uh, I think I watched Cheers almost from the very beginning. I can't say that I watched the pilot, but I might have. Uh, I watched, you know, must-see TV on Thursdays before it was even given that name. Um, so, And I, I love the show from the beginning. I just thought it was really funny, really smart. And it was, you know, I mean, it really was the kind of place that I wish I had. It was like a, a cool hangout. Uh, kind of place so it was just like it was just like everything that i wanted and i also loved that it had lots of different kinds of jokes it had highbrow it had lowbrow um plus it was just like beautiful to look at you know the the book the the cheer set doesn't look like any other sitcom set you can imagine Mm. so i was pretty much a a lifer from the very beginning and i watched it all the way through i might have lost a season or two um, while I was like at art school and I just wasn't watching as much television regularly. But when the, when I knew it was wrapping up, I got right back into it. And then ever since it came to Netflix, um, I've been watching it regularly. In fact, I started all over again in t- anticipation of the show. What, uh, what art school did you go to? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that one that uh, Norman Rockwell advertised on the back of 60s Marvel Comics. I don't oh, remember the name. That's good. That's good. Uh, Mike, what about you? Well, I think Cheers is one of those shows like MASH or Star Trek where it's never not existed for me. I mean, it's it's always been on television to some degree throughout my entire childhood. I mean, I saw the last episode when it aired live, but it wasn't a show that I watched new episodes of when they were coming out. It was a syndication show for me. It was a show that was playing in reruns on KSTW, which was a Channel 11. It was like a local network when those things existed in like the 80s and 90s. Um, it was a show that until about four or five years ago, I'd caught a lot of pieces of, and I had a lot of affection for, but it was an episode of adventure time that I saw a few years ago that sort of kicked off my new love of cheers that there's an episode of that show where the theme song to cheers was like a poignant plot point. And I'm just like, you know, I should retry that. And 
I ended up marathoning the entire series on Netflix over the course of a couple of years. And I guess what really hit me with Cheers is that it has a lot of the classic, you know, sitcom tropes, the formatting that you would see with all these other sitcoms. But the writing and the dialogue were just really funny. And I think compared to almost anything else that was coming out at the same time, it's aged remarkably well. And then when you go back and look at a lot of the sitcoms that were coming out at the time, I mean, you're not going to get that level of quality, I think. I mean, if you went back and like watched Family Matters and a lot of those shows that came out then, I mean, a lot of really big hits that were that were huge like Cheers. I think that, you know, your nostalgia goggles would just crack. But Cheers, I think, is one of those really rare shows that has stood the test of time. And I think that, you know, people who do discover it, again, uh, as adults or... Uh, try it for the first time on Netflix will be really pleasantly surprised by how remarkably timeless it is. It's just a great show. I am so glad that the show is on Netflix for the sake of convenience. Um, but part of me kind of twinges because as they were coming out, I bought the DVD box sets for every season. Um, so that's about $400 that I spent on the show. And then just seeing it's on Netflix, I'm like, should I sell these now? Because someday it'll be off of Netflix and I'll be in the middle of this podcast when it, when it goes oh, away. I, um, I can say from personal experience <laughs> with The Rockford Files, which is a show that I really love. Me? Oh, yeah, yeah, me too. Oh, that went off of Netflix. And owning the physical media really is kind of great because you never know when they pull the plug on this stuff. So it's good to have that there. Omar, what about you? What's your story? You know, thankfully, I am not quite as old as Rob, so I didn't start watching it from the very beginning. Um, Ouch. I, was, I know, I know, that was a gratuitous shot for no reason. Um, but I, so I, I was, I was very little. Like I was, I was barely one when the series premiered. And my earliest memories of it, and I'm sure you can relate to this, Ryan, were of Cheers as a staple of the classic Thursday night lineup in the 1980s. I believe the lineup was uh, Cosby, Family Ties, Cheers, Night Court, and then some variation of Hill Street Blues or L.A. Law. Yeah, that um, was like the – I was going to mention that, but there were about three seasons or three years in the – like from 86 to 88, I think, when that was the lineup. Cosby Show, Family Ties, Cheers, Night Court. Yeah, and, and, and you don't – I mean we didn't realize at the time how astounding a, a concentration of – talent and excellence that night was until you know after the fact i mean you never know you're in a golden age until you're out of it um and and to be honest you know when i was when i was a kid when i was airing between you know i was between the ages of one and twelve uh i i I knew it was there but as a kid i you know the cosby show was much more appealing and family ties was you know something that i was a lot more drawn to and and it was seemed a little too adult for me but I still got it. I got that it was a big deal. I recognized that it was, you know, a well-heralded sitcom. And I, of course, tuned in, you know, when it had its series finale. But it wasn't until nine or ten years later when it was released on DVD, the first season was released on DVD, that I gave it another shot. And I frankly wasn't expecting to be as blown away. But I would just echo um, what Mike and Rob have said, which is um, the fact that, it is such a perfectly constructed show. And, and you know, when I was watching that first season DVD in 2002 and 2003, the jokes still worked. The casting knocked my socks off. The, you know, the writing was so great. It, it constantly threaded the needle between, you know, serious and funny. 
but yet it never took itself too seriously. Um, I, I think that that show can be taught in classes, in classes on writing, in classes on directing, in classes on acting. It's just a perfect example of of minimalism, but you know, with doing everything exactly correctly. And 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 the fact that it, I don't think it ages. You know, it's funny. In preparation for this, I start. I, I rewatched the pilot, which I'd seen about ten or twelve times in the past, but it it still sucked me in. It was still so good. It was. I still laughed out loud at least like seven or eight times, even though I, I had memorized the pilot cold. There were still unexpected moments. It, it, for me, it was the. It was one of the first shows that was like fully formed. Like it, it started fully formed. It knew what it was going to be, and that it maintained that level of quality for over a decade is astounding. That it went through you know a major casting change, um, and and came out of it unscathed is really a testament. And and you know what what's really struck me too in the last few years is how heralded it is in the television industry. How many producers, writers, directors, and actors of shows that we all love that are broadcast right now. Cheers is sort of their North Star for how to perfectly construct a show. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s and 30s that I kind of fully appreciated how, how, how well made it was. Um, and I think it's a show that, that, you know, as Mike said, doesn't age at all, doesn't show its age. Um, and in that way, it's, in so many others, it stands out from its contemporaries. And I think it's, it's well worth a reexamination. Well, that's the whole point. That's why I'm doing this. Um, and to to the point that you guys have made about how the show doesn't age, there's a sense of timelessness to it, in particular some of the jokes. I think that's partly because um, one of the crea- one of the writers, I think it might have been one of the Charles brothers or it might have been Heidi Perlman, um, but one of them said that Cheers was one of the last shows where predominantly the writing staff didn't grow up watching television. They didn't mm. grow up on television, so. If you look at the type of jokes, they like for being a, a show about us, a bar in a sports town, and a lot of like kind of like blue collar people. There are very literary and erudite jokes and and references to it. It doesn't kind of succumb to a lot of pop culture references. Um, so I, I think that kind of helps it age that that sense of timelessness because it doesn't mark what time it's set in very often. Uh, and I, I think that's just part of it. Um, and yeah, to, to go back to sort of my, my own story, and I'm a contemporary of Omar, so the show started like when I was a baby. Uh, so I wasn't there from the very beginning, but it it does kind of feel like it was it's a primordial show. It was always there. And really some of my earliest memories, particularly with my family, are all of us, my parents and my brother and my sitting down and watching that Thursday, that that what would become the must-see lineup of Cosby Show, Family Ties, Cheers, and Night Court. And for whatever reason, I found myself much more drawn to the workplace comedies on the latter half than the, than the family comedies. But Cheers kind of straddled the line where I could see it, even at an early age, that it was set in a bar, but there was this family comedy aspect to it where you had archetypal characters and like their fixtures of who Sam was, who Diane was, Coach's relationship to them, Carla's relationship to them, and all of these things. And yeah, like Rob said, it felt like a place that I wanted to visit. I wanted to inhabit that space. I wanted to sit with those people. And this is something that I'm sure I will come back to very often, but the bar itself, and Rob is right about the setting and how special it is, Mm. there's a sense of gravity about the bar. It has this quality that 
the longer you stay in Cheers, the more you become part of the more it brings you down to its level. And we'll see this because we have characters who are very successful in later seasons, people like Rebecca and Frasier and Lilith, educated, professional, successful people that to some degree or another <laughs> are brought down very low by their proximity to this place. And it's hmm. done for comedic purposes, and you could say it it's almost has this destructive effect on them, and some it do, does, but it's weird that it doesn't feel like the show... Is t- is it's not being anti elitist. It doesn't have this sort of smugness of, of like superior, like that that we're going against the professional. We're going against the big brain people. You know, there's it doesn't have this chip on its shoulder. It's yeah, just it's, it's this not Caddyshack. Yeah, it's just a more organic type of thing where it's about this place that, and, and uh, yeah, one of my favorite lines in the whole show. It it comes in I think season eight, uh, and Robin Colcord delivers it. And I says, was about to bring up that yeah. line. Yeah, he's like, it's it's fascinating. Everybody else at the end of the day goes to their homes. You people come to this bar. <laughs> it's my favorite line, like the whole series, um, because it just it kind of encapsulates so much about it. Um, so all right, everybody's kind of given their, their story of how they came to it. Let's get into the first episode, the pilot. Uh, and rare for television, the pilot actually has a title. Most pilots in screenplays or teleplays, before they're ordered, they just called pilot. Uh, the pilot's cheers actually has a, a given name, which is Give Me a Ring Sometime. Uh, the episode is written by Glenn Charles and his brother Les Charles directed by James Burroughs. The original air date was Thursday, September 30th, 1982. On their way to get married, university grad student Diane Chambers and her fiancé, Professor Sumner Sloan, stop at a cozy Boston bar called Cheers. There, Diane meets the owner and bartender, Sam Malone, a recovering alcoholic and former relief pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, who bought the bar back when he was drinking. Sumner goes to retrieve the wedding ring, which is currently in the possession of his ex-wife, leaving Diane alone to meet and greet the other regular denizens of the bar. First up is Coach Ernie Pantuso, a sweet and simple-minded grandfather type who followed Sam from the major leagues to bartending. Then there's Cheers' hard-charging, hard-luck waitress, Carla Tortelli, a divorced mother of four, Despite her best efforts to keep to herself, Diane also becomes embroiled in the conversation of some of Cheers' regular patrons, including everyman barfly Norm Peterson and unreliable know-it-all mail carrier Cliff Clavin, who spend their time arguing about the Patriots' draft picks and the sweatiest movie ever made. When Sumner doesn't return by closing time, Sam accurately predicts that he ran away with his ex-wife. Without a job or a husband-to-be, Diane is forced to accept Sam's charitable offer of a job waiting tables, a profession for which none of her years of academia have prepared her. So, what did we think of the first episode? Uh, Mike, what what are your notes? What do you think? Well, I think what really hits me, and this was said by Omar earlier, which is how fully formed the show feels right off the bat. That if you look at a lot of other shows, like like Star Trek, for instance, if you look at the first few episodes of Star Trek, you can sort of see it forming. Like the uniforms aren't quite right at first, like the Federation doesn't exist, they call it other weird things. People aren't quite acting like themselves yet, and it's only until you get to like the middle of the first season that it feels like the Star Trek that you remember. But when you watch the first episode of Cheers... It feels like Cheers. It doesn't feel like almost Cheers or 
going to be Cheers. It feels like the Cheers that you recognize. Like Cliff Clavin, for the first few episodes of this show, is kind of a glorified extra, but he's already acting like the Cliff Clavin that you'd know from like season five. There's there's no real separation. He's already you know giving little known facts and things, and he's kind of the sort of the know it all that probably doesn't know as much as he thinks he does because he heard a thing from a place one time, and that's what I find so fascinating about it is how quickly the show hit the ground running. This is a really strong pilot. And I think it's kind of up to, to two things. One is that the writing is remarkably sharp in this first episode. But also, you talked about this earlier, the idea that this is a place that you'd like to be. And I think that one of the characters of this show is the bar itself. That there is a lot of sitcom sets that are really unimpressive. It's just kind of like three walls in a studio audience. Mm-hmm. But there's a real sense of three dimensions to this place. That mm-hmm. One of the first shots of the episode is Sam walking from the hallway with like the billiard room past the bathrooms into the sort of bar proper. And right off the bat, you know that this is a complicated set. It's not just like I go into a room... I'm at a different location, a different recording time for a set. There's just this kind of sense that this is a real place, that there are stairs that go down into Cheers from the outside. That inside the bar, you know, you have the stairs that go up to Melville's, which is the uh, seafood restaurant upstairs. And, I mean, just it feels lived in. It It feels like a place that you actually would feel comfortable spending 12 hours at, the way that, like, Norm Peterson would. <laughs> And it just – there's something comfortable about it that you wouldn't get with a, a set that was just built for this pilot. It really feels like a set that's already been lived in for decades. And that right off the bat gives it a sense of authenticity that I don't think a lot of shows have right away. Yeah, I agree. And and you mentioned that opening shot, that, that tracking shot is very unusual for the show when it follows Sam. Um, but it is a great way to sort of introduce us to the character and the bar. Um, there's another unusual shot, which is a POV shot. It seems to be Diane's POV when Sumner leaves the second time, uh, when it kind of like shows like the whole bar watching her. Um, one thing I noticed about uh, watching this was Sam only comes out from behind the bar twice in the whole episode. Mm. It's that opening shot when he starts off, at, and then when Act 1 begins, he's in, he's in his office uh, when, when Sumner and Diane first walk in. For the rest of the episode, he is always behind the bar, and he doesn't come out. Uh, Rob, what did you think of the, the show? Well, this is uh, some of the stuff Mike's already touched upon. I mean, I think this is probably the single best pilot I've ever seen. I mean, it is... Uh, it sets up the premise perfectly. All the characters are pretty much set in stone. Or ironically, I would think later episodes, some of the characters acted out of character. Uh, in fact, in episode two, there's a scene with Norm where I'm like, that's not Norm. But here, everybody is pretty much exactly as they as you expect them to be. It's very, very funny. It has some amazing lines in it. And we can get into the specifics of like my favorite joke and things like that. And you you mentioned the uh, the tracking shot in the beginning, and there's no way they could have planned this. I think it's very interesting that the first shot, the first thing that we see Sam doing is adjusting a picture on the wall so it's straightened out. And the last thing he does on the last episode of Cheers is adjusting a picture on a wall. So in the first episode, he's coming out of that hallway, and in the last episode, he's going into that hallway. I mean, it's got an amazing... <laughs> Uh, circular pattern to it. Um, and like I said, the, the set is just beautiful. You've got that recessed part with the piano 
behind the bar. So it's like upraised a little. Then you've got the uh, the parts on the left hand side of the bar. You've got the stairwell. You've got that mysterious closet that seems to only be used occasionally. Uh, I mean, it, it's just such a beautiful show. And I love how each character comes in and we get immediately who they are. We get Norm. We get Coach. How confused he is. We get Carla and her attitude. It's just like every single person is instantly recognizable within a few lines of, of their introduction. It's just perfectly constructed. Did anybody wonder how the wheelchair woman got to her, got down there? How the hell is she there? <laughs> oh, man. There's, the only way into that bar is stairs. <laughs> it is not wheelchair accessible at all. No. It, I, I hadn't even thought of that. That is actually crazy. Either way, I mean, that is a death trap. <laughs> I mean, if you're coming in from Melville's, it's slightly less dangerous because it's not like concrete stairs, but with great difficulty is the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Omar, what'd you think? To echo what uh, Rob and Mike have indicated, I-, I would also say that this is probably the best pilot that I've ever seen. And it's probably, and it's routinely heralded as like one of the best pilots, if not the best pilot ever made. And pilots are inherently a weird thing to the point where. You know, showrunners now and for the past, you know, 30 or 40 years know going into it that there's a certain amount that you're going to be making up on the fly. And there are certain character ticks or writing, you know, idiosyncrasies or, uh, you know, uh, shot, you know, c- cinematography decisions that are not going to be a staple of the, of the ensuing show. The thing is, you know, I could point to maybe one or two quibbles in terms of. You know, things that happened in this pile that didn't end up being a staple of the show. For example, you know, I made a note that Carla's entrance was a little bit atypical um, mm-hmm. in that she was just like really neurotic about being late and defensive, but in a, in a, in a different way than she's usually defensive. And it just, it just seemed a little bit off. But other than that, this is the show. And it sounds like we're damning it with faint praise in the sense that, like, you know, yeah, it was what it continued to be. But, like, pilots are not like that. And I think the three of you can absolutely attest to that. The way they handle the exposition is so understated and clean. They didn't waste a lot of time. but And it was economical. But they told us everything we needed to know. Like, when Coach and Carla talked about and Norm talked about Sam's career as a baseball player, they didn't waste any time. And I think, you know, a lesser show would have just gotten segued and spent like two or three minutes talking about Sam's career. He, this, I, I don't know if it lasted more than like 30 seconds talking about how great he was and then boom, it all came to an end because he was an alcoholic. And so there's, you know, there's pathos and whimsy and, and tragedy in there too, but they, they pull it off. And the thing is, is that it's such a, you knew who these characters were, not just because of the writing, but also because of the acting choices. Shelley Long won an Emmy for this episode. Uh, she comes in fully formed. Ted Danson from that first tracking shop shot, we knew who he was. I'd argue in that teaser, in that cold open, we knew everything about Sam, and within seconds we were on his side. When he like good naturedly sent that kid away for 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 being under twenty one and ordering after his ridiculous Vietnam story, like <laughs> within seconds I was on that side. I wanted to like crawl into a foxhole for Sam. And that's just even the best shows, even the best shows of all time. I don't care if it's your Seinfelds, your Sopranos, your Mad Men, your Breaking Bad, whatever. You need some time to get the rhythm of the peculiarities of the show. The actors need space. They need time to make mistakes. You know, even in pilots that are that are well regarded, 
there's always a little bit of, huh, that's a weird acting or writing choice that doesn't really track. And with Cheers, that doesn't happen very often. You know, I would say that it's, it's, it's the finest pilot ever made, and, and that's saying a lot. They set a high bar that they consistently executed. Uh, I think Jimmy Burroughs won an Emmy for directing this, and they also won an Emmy for, for writing this episode. It is, it's staggering how good it is. It's staggering how immediate the chemistry was between Shelley Long and Ted Danson from when he wandered in to, to answer that phone message and his mouth is full. Mm. Um, you know, these people were all endearing within seconds. I felt the same way about uh, Nicholas Colasanto's performance. These, mm. these people were who we thought they were. Um, and that's an amazing trick to pull off in a pilot. And there's a familiarity to everybody, too. There's a sense that history didn't start when this pilot started, but there's like decades of history between these characters and this location that goes back. Like the easy behavior they sort of have around each other, like Carla and Coach and Norm. It's like these are people that have known each other for years. And the audience is sort of in the place of Diane kind of injecting yourself into this world. But I mean, just the little things that feel like well-honed gags. Like there's this bit where Carla answers the, before she answers this phone, she just yells out who isn't here. <laughs> and, a bunch of people, and a bunch of people raise their hand before she gets the phone. So there's this real sense that this is a place that, you know, a lot of spouses and, and others call in looking for various people because like you mentioned before, this place is kind of a gravity well. And the idea of sucking people down, this bar is literally underground. <laughs> and uh, but it it doesn't feel like you know it isn't hell. I mean, it's there's something warm about it, and it's probably just all the the shiny wood there. But it feels like a place that has history, and it feels like a place that you could just sink into. And I mean, it feels a lot better than the typical again, you know, three walls and a laugh track. It feels like it's a living place, and the the relationships between these characters feel like they go back beyond the point where there are episodes documenting it. Yeah, and you guys mentioned how like it doesn't feel like the universe is just starting. I mean, like one of the most well-known recurring gags about the show is that when Norm walks in the bar, everybody shouts out, Norm! It's kind of this kind of thing. It happens right away. It's in this episode, even though I think Coach and Sam are the only ones who shout it, because they're the only one. He's like the first customer in the door. But you just know that he's been there before. He is the regular as soon as he walks in. And they have that history. And all of a sudden, they just start. he starts talking to Coach about the Patriots. And they're on first-name basis. And, and they have that. And the bar fills up really quick after Norm walks in. Like, with, within a couple of seconds, it's like there's 30 people in here, including a woman in a wheelchair. And we don't know how yeah. she got there. And I, a... I just kind of love that about the, the Norm entrance. I mean, that's something that's referenced on even Star Trek Deep Space Nine, that Quark's bar has a barfly character. Who I sits at the end, who's named Morn. <laughs> it's the sort of thing that's the kind of universal nature of this show that even science fiction programs that have very little to do with with NBC sitcoms are sort of pulling from it. And the one thing I kind of love, and I don't want to spoil this for the next episode, but uh, as even Diane becomes part of the bar's uh, ecosystem. She even adds an element to the Norm call-out, starting with the second episode. Mm -hmm. And there is kind of a cool little moment. The first time she does it, it's not scripted, where everyone yells, Norm, but she goes, Norman? 
Mm-hmm. And you can actually see George Went in that second episode turn to the side and smile and with a yes. really organic reaction. Yes. Because he wasn't yep. expecting it and he just kind of goes with it. And from that point forward, everyone always goes, Norm! And she goes, Norman? It just it feels lived in. There's something mm-hmm. about that that just feels real. Just related to the, the Norm thing, um, there was an episode of um, Later with Bob Costas, which is like one of my favorite shows of all time. Which That's is an amazing show. Completely disappeared down the memory hole. And the, on the eve of the final episode of Cheers, they had Glenn and Les Charles and James Burroughs. And they spent a lot of time talking about the pilot. And James Burroughs says that the first Norm reaction where, uh, where they go, hey, Norm, what do you know? And he goes, not enough. And it got it got a huge laugh. And James Burroughs said he remembered in that moment looking at the at the as he called them the boys, and he said that line isn't that funny, but it got a huge laugh. And he goes, it dawned to me in that moment that the audience immediately understood who this guy was, mm-hmm. like just instantly that he didn't even have to say something that funny, but it was the attitude they were laughing at that got the laugh. And so I, that's what I, I think about that every time I hear that line, because you hear him say, not enough. And you hear the audience laugh. And I'm like, yeah, that line, that isn't like one of Norm's top 50 funniest responses. Mm-hmm. And yet the audience hooked into it immediately. They knew who this guy was. And I think it says a lot about who Norm is, too, and what this bar represents to the people who do spend hours there is that it's like a refuge, that this is the best part of Norm's day. And it's sort of revealed <laughs> over the course of the season that he's an accountant. And he doesn't get a greeting like that at work, I'm sure. He doesn't enjoy his job. There's sort of a beleaguered element to, to Norm that he's kind of beaten down by his job and that he's not a fan of it. And he's not, he doesn't do this out of love of accounting. I mean, he even struggles to, with unemployment for a big chunk of the series. And this is the place where when he shows up, everyone's happy to see him. It's sort of an event, and he can get a beer that he's probably never going to pay for. <laughs> you know, what, what's, what's another thing that's just so stunning about how well executed the pilot is and how it portends for, you know, such a great, legendary, entertaining run is that, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, feel free to disagree with, with me if I'm, if I'm wrong or if I interpreted it incorrectly, but, like, there's not a lot of reinventing the wheel here when it comes to the formulation of characters. You know, you're talking about a lot of stock characters, right? You're talking about, like, the alpha male that every every guy wants to be and every woman wants to be with. You, you know, you're talking about his, um, his, you know, his sort of his girl Friday, rep, you know, repartee, you know, with the intellectually superior, uh, attractive woman. You know, you're, t- you're talking about, like, sort of this sad sack regular the you know there's the dumb character you know what i mean like you're not mm-hmm. inventing these new character types out of whole cloth you're you're taking well-known tropes but it's just you're infusing them with three-dimensionality and pathos and you know a sort of familiarity that gets you hooked and sucks you in from the get-go and that that's a really astounding accomplishment yeah, yeah, actually, I wanted to kind of go around and like talk about all of the characters, and we've talked about Norman. I think we've got a good handle on him. In terms of Carla, I think one of you guys kind of pointed out, I think of all of the characters, she might be the most not quite to the Carla that we know quite yet. She's close. It won't um, take but, long. Yeah, but yeah. but from that first entrance, it's like uh, she's way up at like 
you know, like not like past eleven. She's up at twelve, and we're gonna <laughs> dial her back. But when her when her cynicism gets a little bit more icy and a little bit a little bit more lethal, uh, and at this point she's just kind of shouting at everything. Um, but I what... would love to have Carla's job security. <laughs> <laughs> she's somebody who essentially can get away with anything at work. Sam is never going to fire her, no matter what she does. Even when she shows up late, it comes out as, like, I don't have to apologize for this. Um, but I think the the way her character probably evolves a bit over the course of the series is she becomes less and less afraid of that. I think her fear tends to come out as aggression a lot of the time, that she sort of hits first before anyone else can. Um, and I think a lot of the real fun, biting remarks that that character gets – uh, comes as a result of Cliff becoming more and more of a character over the course of season one. And I really like Carla. It's really kind of hard to pull that character off without making them abrasive to the audience, too. Mm-hmm. I think there's a mix of sort of like biting wit, but also there's like there's a kind of a vulnerability that it's clearly hiding that I think that Rhea Perlman brings to it that a lot of other people wouldn't. Mm-hmm. That she could very easily, I mean, it's a weird comparison, but she could sort of become Danny DeVito's character on Taxi mm-hmm. very well. easily. <laughs> well, they, they, there is a connection there. There is an, a definite <laughs> connection. I mean, they, they are like the most perfect Hollywood romance in my mind. But <laughs> they she found could very each easily, other. <laughs> exactly. They're, they're made for each other. But it, she could have easily become an antagonist the way that he he did, but she didn't. Mm-hmm. That she's really just part of the gang. I think there are a few times, a few scattered moments in this first season where she gets right up to the line of not being likable or sympathetic anymore, but they know where the line is, and they wisely kind of keep her from crossing it. But you're right, and th- there is something about her, and and I just, I love, and we see this play out throughout the course of the whole thing of, like, I think to Carla, the most important thing to in, in her life is she has to be the most important woman in Sam's life. Mm. And I think that, that kind of gives her a, a sense of fulfillment and a sense of accomplishment. She knows they'll never be lovers. They'll never have that romantic attachment. They'll, ne- they'll never, like, hook up or something like that. that. That is not in the cards. But she will go out of her way to sabotage. She loves the fact that he, he sleeps around and he's with a different woman every night because there's, like, a lack of intimacy and he, he, there's the, the lack of emotional connection. It's whenever he gets serious about someone that Carla's fangs come out. That she, she, tries really, to, she tries to sabotage those because she, she gets very protective of Sam too. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So and and it, that might even be what she thinks she's doing. She might think it's coming from a place of protecting him, mm-hmm. um, and maybe it's because she's seen him at his worst when he was a drunk. What what about Coach? I mean, like, what is not to love about this character? Oh, he's he really shines in this one. I I really think that there's a warmth to him that. I mean, there's a lot of this is the dumb character tropes out there, but there's something just immediately lovable about about Coach because there's a sincerity to him that I don't think you can manufacture. And I think Nicholas Colasanto is brilliant in this role that you'd think it would be the easiest role to play in this episode. But I think he might be doing the most difficult work <laughs> because he's playing a character who is constantly confused by everything around him. Yet is constantly trying to give everyone else advice and be a mentor, while <laughs> he really doesn't have a lot to give except sort of his heart. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the and, part that everyone sort of accepts that they're all kind of they all kind of love coach that yeah they're all so fond of him and you can see the see again just like you know they knew what they were doing in this pilot and they knew that like the muscle memory and the seeds planted would extend throughout the series you can tell at least I could tell from the get go that he was going to be sort of an ally of Diane at least you know not in a substantive way but just in a way that like he was someone who was endearing to her, even though she expresses it very clearly through the writing and Shelley Long's performance, how disdainful she finds the environment and how clearly above it all she is, you could tell from the get-go that you can make an exception for Coach because everyone makes an exception for Coach. Like, everyone's sort of stereotypical characteristics, which might cause them to be alienated from anyone else at any given moment, whether it's Carla's abrasiveness or Diane's haughtiness, or, you know, sometimes Sam's self-centeredness. All of that goes out the window when it comes to how each and every one of them interacts with Nicholas Colasanto's character. Um, and you can tell how everyone feels about him from the get-go in the pilot. And, and it's, again, it's a tribute to his performance in the writing. Um, it's, a, it's a very touching, understated way he delivers his lines. Just, I keep coming back to, you know, when... I can't even remember what it is, but, like, when... It's animated the cheese of the Diane's a hooker. And <laughs> like he just kind of like laughs knowingly, but not in like a caddish way, not in a way to ostracize her. It's incredibly endearing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think he does consistently have the funniest lines in this episode. As a, uh. And I think the comparison, I think Carla judges everybody. Coach doesn't judge anybody. Yes. Yeah. Watch Carla's reaction when she goes in. She shows up, right? And she's mm-hmm. ranting and raving. She disappears into the bathroom to take her coat off, which she'll like never do again. But she comes out, and when she comes out, Coach says, hi, Carla. And she goes, hi, Coach. And you look at – she is beaming. Yeah. And it is one of the rare moments where Carla is not having any sort of um, cynical shield up, and that's because she loves Coach. And, like, that's – again, it tells you so much about the characters, the characters' inner relationships in that little moment that Carla hates everybody and is nasty to everybody except for Coach. Like, yeah. she is genuinely thrilled to see Coach – Every day, and on and on a related note, and I'm I'm willing to do this joke now because it's not even my favorite joke in the episode. Is the coach is the centerpiece to me of the most perfectly constructed joke in one of <laughs> history, which is the whole, uh, you know, hello, uh, is there Ernie Bantuso here? That you, coach, speaking. <laughs> the fact that it's done in just one run, and you never see Sam say it. You just hear it off camera. That's yeah. you, coach. It's like they've been through this before. Yeah. And the fact that, that Nicholas uh, Calasanto doesn't even take a beat. He just goes speaking. <laughs> I, it is that is so friggin' brilliant that joke. For me, that's a great moment. And for me, it's that uh it's the moment I think a little later on in the episode when, you know, you could tell how increasingly uncomfortable Diane is and she <laughs> I know it's she motions the coach. And she's like, excuse me, where, where is your bathroom? And he just oh. <laughs> right next to my bedroom. And he says it in such <laughs> studied seriousness in a yeah. way that's a hallmark of coach that makes you love him so much, but is so laugh out loud funny. Oh, it's the sincerity. It's the fact that you know that he's not throwing a line out to be funny. He's not trying to be glib. He's not. Yeah. He really just thinks, oh, she's asking me where my bathroom is. <laughs> she says, where's your bathroom? <laughs> and... He just answers literally. He's just trying to be helpful. I mean, it's the same thing. Like, it would have been so easy to botch the joke of him not knowing his own name on the phone. Right. 
But he nails it because there's never a bit about this character where you doubt it. It never feels like he's doing shtick. It just like he's confused, but he's lovable. Yeah. And he's just immediately supportive and non-judgmental to everybody. And it's like he he immediately welcomes everybody sort of into his circle. And I think you see that over the course of of the season too. You see how much uh, clearly Diane loves him. Mm-hmm. That yeah. there's something just you just want to hug him, and <laughs> that's something that you you wouldn't even necessarily see in the script super easily, just based on the words and actions written down on a piece of paper. It's it's entirely from the performance. That I mean, you miscast this role, and it just doesn't work. I mean, Nicholas Colasanto is brilliant in it as coach. And from what I've heard and what what is sort of out there behind the scenes, off camera, as Shelley Long's relationship with the rest of the cast deteriorated over the years, like um, Nicholas Colasanto was the one member of the cast who, like his character, like never judged her, never had a problem with her. He got along with her, and she was like the only person on the cast that she could like she could talk to and had a confidant, um, which. Sadly, unfortunately, he he ends up passing away in the middle of the third season. So she was really left adrift without him in seasons four and five. But we probably yeah. shouldn't. Oh, I'm sorry, Ryan. Yeah, no, go ahead. I would say we probably, I probably should not be jumping ahead like this, but I can't help it because we're talking about Nicholas Calasanto and mm-hmm. uh, Vanity Fair. I think did a, an oral history of Cheers a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. And Ted Danson told this story that I'd never heard, which was amazing, is that they said that the frame of the bar out on the outside of the door was like you don't see it on camera. Um, obviously, because you see everybody coming in from the bar and any shot they would have of the bar from the outside was a separate shot or whatever. But anyway, they had this frame where the actors would wait to do their entrances and Nicholas Colasanto would they would like write their names or write funny jokes just to each other. And Nicholas Colasanto like wrote his name on that frame. And after the after he died, they came back for the fourth season and somebody at Paramount's crew had painted over it and destroyed oh, it. Yeah. And, and they said, Ted Danson said, I kid you not. He said, the show almost ended because oh. we were all so mad that we almost all quit. That's easy. And he's like, I'm being completely serious that the show literally almost went off the air because we were so furious that this memento of this man that we all loved has, was so thoughtlessly obliterated. And I was like... Wow, because Cheers was like the number one show on television yeah. by the fourth season. That is saying something that, that the cast almost in unison was like, F this. How <laughs> dare you do this? And like that just says so much about how much they love Nicholas Calasanto. Yeah. And, and we will spend a lot of episodes before then uh, talking about how much we love the character. Um, moving on uh, really quick, he is not in the opening credits for the first season, but uh, John Ratzenberger from The Empire Strikes Back, John Ratzenberger as Cliff Clayton. Um, oh, Pixar's I, lucky charm. Yeah, I need to actually one of the projects as I go through this is I need to find out if he is in every episode because for some reason I wanted to say that the only cast members, the only characters to appear in every episode are Sam, Carla, and Norm. That uh, sounds right to me. Yeah, yeah but, but I'm not sure, because like, I, I think it might be something, and it might be something where Cliff is only absent from one episode, maybe two, and I'm not sure if it's in the first season, because he wasn't, a regular, he did, you know, his name isn't in the opening credits yet. But yeah, the, uh, the, I saw an interview where he actually had talked his way onto a role in the show. Yes, he, 
yeah. had uh, managed to say, to, well, well, maybe there's a, there should be a bar know-it-all. It's like, you know, uh, this, uh, this bar stool here, this is a, this is a European mahogany. <laughs> well, that and, was because uh, he, I think the story is that he originally auditioned for the Norm part, yep. and he didn't get it. Yep. And it was then that sort of on the fly... He was like, you know, you guys should have a know-it-all character. Yep, I was, I was kind of going to get into the, the casting. Uh, it's a little-known fact uh, that, <laughs> yeah, he, you guys actually, you, you got it. He Ratzenberger auditioned for the part of Norm. He didn't get it. He knew in the room that he wasn't going to get it, but on his way out, he was like, you know, you should try doing, you know, one of these know-it-all, the, char- the guy who's, you know, an authority on everything, uh, on every subject, you know, in the bar that you always see. And the Charles brothers and Jim Burroughs, they really liked the idea, and they kind of thought, like, what would add to the sense of authority to, to give it to him is if he was a man in a uniform. And they didn't know what it was going to be, but it ended up becoming a postal carrier uniform because they just uh, yeah. that, that sense of professionalism <laughs> would give him a sense of authority. So you would be inclined to kind of believe that he knows what he's talking about until it becomes really obvious that he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah, um, it's, it's always bizarre explanations too. He's just like you know what the uh, the high of the Roman Empire, uh, and it's just—it's always something really weird. And I've always kind of wondered what the post office thought of Cliff Clavin. <laughs> well, we find out. We find out in a couple episodes. They—they—they they, they address it pretty head on. Um, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, other just little uh, casting things while, while we're there. Um, Rhea Perlman was the first member of the cast who was uh, who was cast. Uh, the creators knew her from Taxi. Because uh, the Charles Brothers and Jim Burroughs had worked on that, George Went at the time had been committed to doing another series. Um, he was working on a pilot for that. It didn't get picked up, but if it had, George Went wouldn't have been Norm. Like, oh, it, wow. it was a thing where he was he was committed to this other show, even though they really wanted him. And it was just because the other show, the pilot, didn't get picked up. It failed that it freed him up to play the part of Norm. Uh, and then the Sam and Diane parts, uh, they actually auditioned in pairs. And the creators really liked Shelley Long, but they weren't sold on Ted Danson. And part of that was the character of Sam Malone was originally envisioned to be a retired football player. They were thinking about somebody like a Dick Butkus type of guy, some big, beefy linebacker, because they kind of wanted a like a Stanley Kowalski type of thing, for uh, like uh, that kind of comparison. And when they looked at Ted Danson, they're like, he's too lanky, he's too tall, he's too skinny. Nobody's going to believe he's this former you know, football player jock. But Ted Danson kind of said it was just the fact that he auditioned with Shelley, and they loved her, and they liked their chemistry enough that they're like, okay, we'll go with Sam, we'll go with Ted Danson, but we need to re envision this character. So they rewrote him as an ex baseball player instead of a football player. I really love Ted Danson in this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I kind of love that he does, and this is a hard thing to pull off, which is frequently. Um, he is kind of like, you know, Michael Bluth on Arrested Development. <laughs> Everyone else gets to be crazier than he is, and he can still command the room. There are moments where everyone else is sort of being funny, and there's a lot of sh- shots of Sam sort of smiling and reacting to it, but it still kind of feels like this is Sam's place that this stuff is happening in. And a lot of that is just nonverbal acting and a lot of his reaction shots and a lot of his delivery that he sort of injects himself in sort of surgically a lot of the time. And I think he he does it really well. And it's not just because he has great chemistry with Shelley Long and everyone else. But, I mean, you just get a sense. You understand why everyone likes Sam. 
that a lot of people could have gotten a lot of the things like his womanizing or a lot of these things about him and could have made him unlikable. But there's just there's never a moment where you side against Sam, even when he's being a bonehead in later episodes, that there's just something charming about him. One of the, the trademarks of Ted Danson's career, I would argue, is that uh, he's, he's never been taken as seriously as he should as a flat out great actor. Um, and, and I think that is like the perfect marriage of amazing, consistent writing with, you know, an actor who, who absolutely knew what he was doing, absolutely could sell the character because Mike is right. I mean, there are, on the surface, there are a lot of sort of machismo alpha characteristics that would be a turnoff. But he inspired the character inspires such loyalty from the get go. And I, I, you know, in rewatching it, I don't think I gave him the credit for the dry wit that he had. I mean, so many of the one-liners that came out, even in the, you know, just just even in the pilot, just bowled me over. And the way he sold it, um, the, 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 you know, a line I keep coming back to is when Sumner and Diane go through that, <laughs> you know, uh, story of like how he decided to propose, and and he he cited the John Dunn poem. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, that's done. And without missing a beat, as he continues to like work or like, you know, push his rag around, whatever he's doing, Sam is just like, well, I certainly hope so. And that line just (laughs) kills me. He's so good at it. And like he, yeah, it's, it's, again, I, I don't think he got nearly the credit that he deserved for selling a character that the entire audience could rally around like for 11 straight years and like he he did it from from the very outset of the show cuz you know there are so many things you could easily resent about Sam um he is not you know he's so single minded so self-centered you know like not worldly at all but he's just he's unbelievably good in selling that character mm-hmm. um you know I loved Sam from like the first 2 minutes you know just just like the nonverbals dancing employees like the the little smile that he has when he's listening to like, you know, a, a customer or one of the regulars or his employees, you could tell he had, you know, he, he gives Carla, you know, a long leash because he loves her. Um, yeah. and, 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 and so, and you can tell that sort of affection, whether it's a norm, Carla coach, um, you, you can tell that kind of affection reverberates throughout. Um, yeah, and, and, you can... and again, I, I just don't think that we appreciated him enough while the show was on, his acting skills in selling that character. And even in the very first opening bits before the credits, I mean, you play out how that scene could have gone where a kid shows up who's got to be like 14 years old trying to buy a beer. Yeah, I got to cut you off right now. The kid, by the way, um, the actor is John P. Navin, was in National Lampoon's Vacation. Yes, he's, oh. he's one of the, uh, the Hick family. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's... Uh, that Sam immediately makes the choice to just see where this is going. He wants, <laughs> like, he he knows that he could just throw the kid out right away, but he's like, I really want to see what this kid's ID looks like, <laughs> and he's just amused by it, and he just kind of want to see sees wants to see how much this kid has thought of in advance, <laughs> and the kid is completely unconvincing, but there's a little bit too where. He's mouthing his birth date at <laughs> yeah. the same time as Sam is because it's clearly he's really put a lot of work into this, <laughs> and it, it's clearly not successful. And it was doomed from the start. But Sam is a sort of person that's going to like, okay, I'm going to let this kid workshop his material with me. <laughs> <laughs> and, so you and, must and have served in Vietnam. Oh yeah, how was it? 
gross. 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 <laughs> they say war, war is gross. gross. <laughs> but, I mean. Those little moments, too, with Sam, too, he's never mean about it either, that he could just be mean, but he's not. Like, there's a bit, too, where there's something good-natured about it. Like, when Diane and Sumner, uh, Sumner's about to leave to go uh, try to get the ring from his ex-wife, and Diane says something like, oh, Sumner, am I stupid to let you go back to (laughs) where you were previously in love with? He's like, Diane, I'm leaving you alone in a bar. Which one of us is the stupidest? And Sam says, too close to call. I love that line. (laughs) It's just, and he says it with just a little bit of like, it's, it's something kind of puckish about it, but he's just, he's just having fun with the situation. He's not, he's not upset with it. He's just kind of like, who are these kind of ridiculous, pompous people? But uh, let's see where this is going to go. Um, he's he's happy to go down that rabbit hole because things probably frequently happen right in front of Sam and Sam finds a way to, to find his fun in it. <laughs> Rob, what do you think of Sam? Uh, well, first of all, I'm so glad you brought up John D. Navin because <laughs> that he's I don't think he's acting anymore. His credits stop around the early 2000s. If I was that guy, because he's got to be like about my age now. I would totally be on the con circuit as first ever <laughs> Cheers customer. First, yeah, I mean, first I, line in the show, the first bit yeah, of dialogue is him. I, I'm the first ever Cheers customer. How about I'm a beer, the Chief? First That's the first you see. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I would, I would milk that for all it's worth, John D. Navin. But, but okay. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned the other, you know, like that 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 they only went with Ted Danson mostly because he was so good with Shelley Long. I mean, to his credit, he gives, he's very effusive in his praise. To Shelley Long. He has said that he it took him years to nail down Sam Malone while he felt Shelley Long had Diane from line one, page one. And he said that he used her as the anchor on how to sort of pivot and learn how to do it. And then when you also learn about the other actors that they were considering, William Devane, which would have been way too old. Mm-hmm, like, yeah. I don't know if he gets William Devane, but he just would have been too old to have a romance with Shelley Long. It would have been creepy. And well, Fred he had a, uh, William Devane, I think, had a relationship with Nicolette Sheridan on Knott's Landing at the same time, which was also creepy. Yeah, and or Fred, Fred Dreyer, who, of course, plays Dave on – He comes uh, and, in later episodes, Hunter. yeah. Look, okay, the difference if, – if Fred Dreyer had been cast and cheered – no, nothing against Fred Dreyer. But if he had been cast, this show would have been off the air in, in half a season because mm. Fred Dreyer looks like the kind of guy that stuffed nerds in a locker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you never got the sense that Sam Malone was that kind of guy, that even though he was a jock, he's not a dick. Yeah, not a and bully. I, I think he's not a bully, exactly. And I think they knew to cast Fred Dreyer as the oafish, dickish version of Sam Malone. Now, Sam likes him, they're buddies. But he wants to be a better person, which is why he responds to Diane the way he does. It's it's Fred Dreyer. He would have been just you could not have tolerated that that version of Sam Malone for very long. So Cheers would have just been at one of those half season shows that would have been like, oh, yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, well, it didn't last. So they managed to just the chemistry obviously worked perfectly. And, and, and thank God, because Ted Danson was perfect. And, you know, to this day, Ted Danson, I have an affection for him. For from Cheers, you know, I see him in other projects. He shows up for two lines in Saving Private Ryan, and I'm just yeah. like, oh yeah, Ted. Oh, I'm so glad Ted Danson's in this movie, and then he's mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. You know, but just I just love him. It's like Alan Alda. I just mm-hmm. every follow him from thing to thing. I'm just like, I'm just happy to see that he's here because I just well, like this actor so much. I, I, you know, and I would, I, I, I feel the same way, Rob. But I would also 
amend that to say that like the, the characteristic about Ted Danson and Alan Alda is we remember them from these iconic roles that really you know shape them in our consciousness and you know defined you know defined so much for us. But they're also both outstanding actors. Oh yeah. And the reason they've been able to do so much in the last like you know Alan Alda in the last like. 35 years after MASH went off the air, he's been so prolific. And Ted Danson, I would argue that, like, he's been on a renaissance for, like, the last 15 to 20 years, appearing in everything, whether it's, like, CSI or, you know, or Damages or, you know, or... Curb your enthusiasm, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's because he is so, so solid as an actor. He's classically trained, like, he knows his stuff, and I would say that's characteristic about the both of them. So I would say that it's really a tribute to the the people, you know, in running MASH and the Glenn and Les Charles and Jimmy Burroughs that they knocked it out of the park with the casting. Yep. And, and Rob, you know the <laughs> one of your side projects is going to be the MASH and Cheers connections as we both do these podcasts. Yes, there's of course – I mean you think about what a golden age of television that there was one season where you could have watched MASH and Cheers on television at the same time. Mm-hmm. MASH was in its last season with Cheers was in its first like, to me, it's like there was this brief period where, oh, my God, both shows were on at the same time. And, of course, there's an actor in this very episode who has been on both shows. Yeah, Sumner. Uh, Sumner, Sumner. Played yeah. by uh, Michael oh, McGuire. Michael also, McGuire. George Wendt was on an episode of MASH. Oh, that's right. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And Shelley Long. What am I saying? Shelley Long was on MASH as well. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, so there's a lot of – and, of course, the Glenn and Les Charles wrote an episode of MASH. So that was their first – that's lot, their first writing credit. Their first, was, sale, their first sale, yeah. And it's a great episode. I yeah. can't wait to get to it in 20 years. Uh, but, I mean, like it's – there's going to be a lot of overlap simply because I think that if you were writing – you know, um, the Donnie and Marie Wonder show or whatever, you weren't going to get MASH, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you were coming off MASH, you could go to Cheers because it was kind of more highbrow, you know, it was probably mm-hmm. more of a plum gig, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so, yeah, it's t- Ted Danson is just just flawless in this. And it was, it was, he was the one that inspired the show to kind of go off the air because apparently they were considering it because he said, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm, we're done. NBC was like, this show is still a monster hit. Can we do it without Sam Malone? And apparently the Charles brothers and the Burroughs and James Burroughs got together and said, no, like yeah. we can withstand no Diane and we can withstand this person. But the show is Sam. The show yeah, that's is kind of an underrated. I mean, we can, we'll get to it obviously much later, but like that's kind of an underrated footnote in Cheers history. Shelley Long got a lot of crap for um, leaving the show and but 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 you know people don't realize that it was like Cheers ended because Ted Danson wanted to leave the show. He yep. didn't want to do the show anymore. And and if he had wanted to continue doing it, it would have run in perpetuity because its ratings and its creative juices were still quite high at the time uh, it went off the air. Yep. It's kind of crazy because it didn't have those ratings for the first few years. That it's an example of a show formula that you don't get nowadays where the network is willing to give something that they think has a lot of quality a few years to find its audience well and you can thank convicted rapist bill cosby for this yeah the first couple years um you know and ryan i think you would know better than i but i I think that it was still it was still struggling in the ratings and like it was coming down to the wire at the end of the first season whether they would renew and at the end of the second season but it was when Cosby like hit that that eight seven central time slot. It acted as this like boomerang for everything else, and mm-hmm. finally earball like eyeballs started tuning into Cheers for the first time. Even though the critics 
and the industry had been like watching it for some time saying this show is amazing. But it was only in like the third season that like the rest of America was like, hey, that show is pretty good. Yeah, depending on again like the different sources, the different you asked, it was like the president like the show's ratings did not merit it getting renewed. Actually, like the show's ratings did not merit it going past thirteen episodes. It could have been canceled mid-season. But oh, it was like it was, a, it was a, a a very irresponsible decision by the yeah. head of the company. From and a it's, it's standpoint to again depending on the sources, it might have been the president of NBC making that decision alone, or it might have been his wife convincing him because she liked the show <laughs> and she yeah. said, "Don't cancel that show. Give it more time." Um, and that might have been it. I, I do want to. I, I need to talk a little bit more about Sam and and my thing about him. But I I did want to mention um, Michael McGuire, who plays Sumner. Um, just in talking about some of his other IMDb credits, for Rob, obviously he was in an episode of Mash. Um, for our fellow Fire and Water Network All Star, uh, uh, Michael McGuire was in Dark Shadows for about twenty episodes. He <laughs> appeared on Wonder Woman, and Omar, you might remember him. He was in a first season episode of The West Wing. Who was he in the West Wing? He was uh, Congressman Tillinghouse in Five Votes Down, who uh, oh, the vice yeah. president has his, uh, has his lunch with. Yeah, he has that southern accent when the vice president says, I'm going to be president of the United States someday, and you're not. Wow. So, um, but getting back to Sam, I've been preparing for this podcast in one form or another like for uh, about a year and, and re-watching the show again and again and again, like from start to finish, the whole series. <laughs> and I kind of – there was a time when I thought – I don't know if I can talk about the show because of, you know, the Me Too moment and looking at Sam as a character and how much sex and womanizing and how much of this is part of his character. And I was like, is this going to is this something that ages well or is this going to be a hang up for the show? And and I kind of every time I thought it might be a problem, I kept coming back to this this undeniable truth that it's it's not for him. It's not coming from a place of malice. He's not seducing women to to punish them or victimize them or something. And and I don't think he's – there's no sinister intention with him. And something crystallized when I watched this episode, this first one. It's when he's talking to Diane and – He's he's basically telling her that she's it's it's clear that Sumner is not coming back. He's left her, and Sam is trying to say, you know what, you're better off without him. And she's like, you you can't judge him. You don't know him. And she's like, that that goof will be on the cover of Saturday Morning Review someday. And he says that goof is going to be on a beach in Barbados tomorrow, like rubbing suntan oil on his ex-wife. And this look of hurt comes on Diane, that that stung her so deeply. And then it cuts back to Sam, and his reaction is shame and guilt because yeah. he didn't mean to yeah. hurt her. And I yeah, think, and what's, it, I think yeah. what's at the th- core of Sam, sort of what, what fulfills him, is he likes making people happy. That's why he kept the bar. There's no reason why an alcoholic would surround himself with booze every day, every hour for the rest of his life, except when Sam lost baseball, he lost that one avenue where he could make people feel happy. That was what gave him purpose. But when he had the bar, you know, every day people came and they drank and they talked at Cheers and they left that bar feeling better than they did when they walked in. That fulfilled Sam. And part of it, like the womanizing too, he's just he's giving them pleasure. It's there's nothing seedy or sinister about it. He's not trying to like you know torment them or anything. It's it's not done from a place of maliciousness. It's just about making people happy. And I think 
that's that's ultimately why he has cheers and why he won't let it go because bartending for him is is just the place of giving people pleasure and i think that's that's kind of at the core of him yeah he's got an underlying sweetness to him that really is a great contrast to his sort of jock persona and mm-hmm. i think that again not to me constantly ma- making these comparisons but that's a similar notion to I was worried about that with with Hawkeye and Trapper because mm-hmm. it's like they're constantly betting down the nurses and it's like, Ugh. but you know you have to kind of see where it's coming from and realize yeah it's not malicious they're not trying to fool anybody unlike right. say other later characters in some other sitcoms they're not pretending to be anything other than they are other than look I'm a, I'm trying to bed you down but you know that right. and you can give in or not but I'm not trying to fool you or trick you or anything like that. And that's, that, that's how Sam manages to stay sort of sweet through, you know, all these years of, of, of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so get it coming along to our last character. We meet Sam first. We meet him in the teaser and we see him first, but for the rest of the show, we are sort of introduced to the characters through Diane's POV. And I, I kind of wonder like how much of the show, how much of this episode is, Sam's story versus how much of it is Diane's story. I would argue it it really is Diane's story because Sam, Mm -hmm. we love him, but he doesn't have an arc. None of the characters really have an arc in that story except for Diane, who is really reactive and and she loses something. Um, So what do we think about her in this first episode? Oh, you guys talked before about, you know, this is a show written by really smart people, and I think that it had to be, if you're going to do Diane believably, mm-hmm. that it isn't just a bunch of blue-collar guys making fun of the, the snobs, mm-hmm. that there really is an, an affection for Diane at the same time that the show kind of pokes fun at her because she can get a bit pompous. So there's an element of her that she's bringing culture to the masses and sort of... Uh, like when she has her first customer, she immediately goes into like museum tour guide mode. <laughs> and I think there's that, that part of it. And I think this is definitely her story where Sam sort of represents kind of the living embodiment of the bar, that he is the location, that the place is a living place. And Sam is sort of the consciousness that is cheers, which is why I really think you couldn't have taken him off of the show but i think with diane you have to have writers that understand the cultural references that she's making and when she's making them she's clearly trying to educate the people around her and everyone sort of kind of tolerates each other that that she doesn't realize how much she's learning from them while they are kind of picking up stuff from her that there is kind of a cultural exchange that she's kind of uh the fish out of water in this environment and uh, one of the things that's that's really interesting about it is how she wants to be sort of above it all, you know, that she uh, wants to be like, oh, she's just horrified by the the arguments they're having about the world's sweatiest movie. But she eventually kind of gets pulled into that world, and it, you see her kind of slowly become a person that can be at home at this bar, that the bar doesn't reject her. It is happy to accommodate her to a certain extent. And I kind of like that about that setting. It's kind of the plot is not about her trying to find that equilibrium. And we see her kind of become more at home that she still is Diane, that she hasn't changed as a person into a completely different being. But there's sort of like an accommodation that she makes for the bar at the same time and becomes somebody that as odd as she is compared to the people around her does belong there. It's it's hard for me to be objective because Diane is probably my favorite character. But I think that it's a tribute to the, the writers that 
it could be entirely from Diane's point of view, this pilot, but still seem like a story about the bar and a story where Sam is front and center. And, and you know, f- with me, it's like her expressiveness, the actress's expressiveness. And you could tell her she had electric chemistry with Sam from the get-go, not necessarily because they had like excessive repartee in their very first exchange, but it's in her facial expression when he says, you know, he wants the phone message and he's like, well, and she's like, you're a magnificent pagan beast. And he's like, thanks, what's the message? And she just (laughs) gives him this look of like perfect quizzical exasperation that just sells me on the whole thing, sells me on the relationship, sells me on the fact that like these two are going to have like go on this like journey for the ages. And, you know, I think she gets she could conceivably have been weighed down with a lot of a lot of pretentious dialogue. And of course, she sells the dialogue because she's a great actress. But with me, it's not about the way she delivers the line. It's the way she can like switch between a thousand different facial expressions, which is why she's such a gifted comic and dramatic actress in this show. She can sort of internalize the goofiness and the madhouse quality of the bar. And she can also be vulnerable because like Sumner has left her alone. Um, You you know, it's just, she, she switches from like comedic to dramatic in like a matter of seconds when she thinks that like Sumner has abandoned her and she's starting to get anxious and twitchy about it to when she's gently trying to get to know the other regulars like coach. And when she's initially scared off by Carla, she, again, it's all in her face. It's in her, like this inquisitive inquisitiveness in her face where she's like, you can tell she's judging everyone, but trying not to judge them. There's just something incredibly endearing about the character. And, you know, I, from the get go, I knew I wanted to be on this journey with her and Sam and these regulars and, and that, you know, I was going to be behind the eight ball with like her emotional journey um, and her wacky encounters with these people for years and years and years. And like the pilot, you know, within a matter of minutes told me that it was going to be okay. I, I do think that she had an arc and I was all in on her arc from the get go. Same with Sam. And it's just because of the perfect marriage of these writers who knew what they wanted with this character and this actress who sold the crap out of it. Rob? Yeah, I mean, Shelley Long just had it from the very beginning. And uh, again, I, not to keep, I'm going to end up going back to this a lot for every guest appearance I have on the show, but that later episode, they talk about her and they said that Bob Costas gives her a very good compliment and he says, you know, it's easy to dismiss Shelley Long because she left the show for a movie career, which really didn't work out. But that doesn't make her any less awesome. And he said she was tremendous as Diane Chambers. And he's right. She is the anchor of that show in the beginning because she had her character from the beginning. You love her, but you also kind of want to strangle her. But you, <laughs> under, you understand her. I mean, it's there's a later episode where it's like they're playing a game to pick something. And like Sam is like, pick a color. And she goes, OK, mauve. Like she picks that color as opposed to red or green or blue. She's mom. And that's who she is. She just can't help herself. And that's that. I mean, she is by being a waitress at Cheers. She is playing at a much lower register than she believes she's capable of. And who can't relate to that? Uh, so, I mean, she she is us. She is us. And because she's not always as smart as she thinks she is. And again, that's, you know, raises hand. And so she is just absolutely she just crushed the role. I could say I, 
all it's all credit to the Cheers people who saw her and just said, that's it, that's her. And the fact that they were willing to go with Ted Danson, who they were iffier on, just to get her. Mm. That says something about how talented she was. And she's very funny when she's seeing another. She's on Modern Family now. She's very funny on that show. Mm. Yeah, she's, she's wonderful. Yeah, she, I mean, she was maybe never destined to be a big movie star, but it doesn't matter. She had five amazing years on, on Cheers. So she was, she's just perfect. So here's kind of an open question for everybody. Uh, the relationship between her and Sumner, it never <laughs> quite feels like romantic love. It feels like she idolizes him. And marrying him is sort of like this wonderful, like, godlike, you know, intellect kind of validating her. And he's so paternalistic with her. It's so funny. Yeah. He calls yeah. her my beautiful. He calls her a beautiful child. Yeah, this, that was. Gonna, I was gonna have a segment on like things that didn't quite work or don't quite hold up, and the fact that Sumner is marrying his student. I was like, yeah, yeah. this is. This one is kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure I buy this one anymore. It, it is definitely on the creepier side. Um, there's a sense of like she's being accepted by this person. It means I must be like these because he has all these qualities that I idolize, and when she defends him to Sam, she doesn't defend him in the sense of, oh, he says these wonderful things to me, or he's kind, or he's gentle. It's his reputation. It's his accomplishments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like he is a an intellectual giant mm -hmm. and a cultured person, and she is. I, I believe that she's hurt by him, but I think her relationship that she sees with him, I mean, it's not love, not really, but it still hurts. Mm -hmm. It still hurts because it's still someone who's probably a hero to her, ultimately rejecting her and doing it not even to her face. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's the, the hard thing, too, is just basically like just dropping her off somewhere and driving away. <laughs> Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up pretty soon, but uh, I did want to get to just a few other very brief sort of trivia elements of this episode. Again, it's a little-known fact. Um, the Charles Brothers were inspired by Faulty Towers, um, one of my favorite shows, uh, and they did for a while. They were considering setting the show in a hotel bar, uh, and it just sort of morphed over time. And actually, you guys – it's funny. You guys have kind of mentioned Star Trek a couple times and comparing it to – and the way it shows – Actually, this pilot episode was almost completely rewritten from its original draft because, according to the Charles brothers, they had a very different idea for the first episode, and it was going to be about a young woman becoming the owner of the bar and facing the animosity of the staff and the regulars. Now, if that sounds familiar, wait a couple of seasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. Glenn Charles yeah. said they couldn't make that, that work in the script or whatever, so they threw it in the trash. But apparently the trash never got picked up in their office because they basically recycled that same plot for season six when they have to replace Diane with Rebecca. That's the situation. They kind of came back to it and made it work. So that was almost the plot of this first episode. It was going to be that. Never throw anything away. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, so, um, Rob, you mentioned this, uh, you said this would be a good, uh, running thing to have on the show, which is Norm's tab. And how many beers does he drink in this episode? I, I kind of had to figure this out in my head, but I count four different beers in this episode. If we assume that from one commercial break to the next, a significant amount of time has passed. 
Yeah, there's a time lapse in the middle of that. The, and yeah, it goes is. from light outside to dark outside. Well, it goes from the opening of the bar to closing time or something, or close to it. So, yeah, I, I count at least four bars, and I'm going to try and keep this running tab, or at least four beers, and I'm going to try and count this running tab every episode. Before we close this one out, um, we do have a few little uh, superlative qual- categories to go through that I want to get from everybody sort of really quick. Employee of the week, guys, who was the best or funniest or your, your sort of MVP character in this first episode? Omar, who is your MVP? Who's the employee of the week? Uh, I'm going to say Diane for establishing our point of view, for bringing us into this world, for, for uh, setting up dazzling chemistry with Sam. Uh, yeah, I got to give it to Shelley Long. Mike? I'm going to go with Coach. Um, I think that we've talked a lot about the qualities that, that he brought to the show and how efforts, effortless it was. But including things where he's giving people – he's trying to boost people up even when it's about things that aren't like – it's like he was a drunk. He was a great drunk. And I, I think that I, – I love that there's something about him that you just immediately love and you see the impact that he has on everyone around him. And especially in this episode, he was on fire. Rob? I got to go with Diane. I, I agree with Omar. I think it's, it's her story and she creates a job for herself. Which is amazing. She shows up and, you know, they apparently don't need a second waitress, but uh, she creates – I think Sam most, most, more, mostly just wants to give her a job because he feels pity on her. So she, she manages to insert herself into this world without anybody knowing that there was a void. So I got to give it to Diane. I had, I had Diane and Coach, both of them in a toss-up. So I was, I'm right there with you guys. I thought Coach had consistently the funniest lines um, but Diane's performance, like being both feisty and vulnerable, intellectual but not off-putting, uh, she starts line. It, it's really, really good, the two of those. So, yeah, I'm going to split the difference, yeah. Uh, and then the last one, sort of our home run category, what was the best or funniest line or bit in the episode? Uh, we'll go the opposite order, Rob. All right. I, well, this is one of the reasons I love Cheers is that, to me, they give the funniest line to Sumner. I, I, uh, you're taking, yes. There we go. When, okay, when they're all, yes. you know, where where Diane goes to Sumner for some yes. comfort and some understanding about, can you believe okay, I've we, had Sidious? We, 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 we gotta set this up. We gotta set this up. The sweaty, the sweatiest <laughs> film ever made, and without missing a beat, yes. Cool Hand Luke. He yes. just nails it. And I love the one the thing that the, the joke does so many things on top of just being funny. Yes. But I love the fact that it gives you a sense that the Cheers writers that this show is not going to do as we talked about slobs versus snobs. It's like, hey, Sumner's loose. Sumner can joke. He's got he's got a he's got a, a suggestion for the sweaties movie. He's not offended by this discussion, and he's got a suggestion. By the way, I have to mention one of the other movies they mention. Body Heat, which of course co-starred Ted, Ted Danson. Danson. And it, actually, so, it shows him right after right after Cliff shouts out Body Heat, it cuts to Ted Danson. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else at Creep Show. You know, I mean it's just like all this mad <laughs> stuff. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, I never tire oh. of hearing Sumner go, Cool hand Luke. I just yeah. like he, yeah, Michael McGuire nails the timing of it perfectly. And it's so so generous of the Cheers writers to give that good a joke to a to a guest star. They do, that a, they do that a couple of times. I'm going to come back and say there's a couple of times where the guests get the best laugh. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I had that one too. That was, that was a great one. And again, it goes back to my, my thing that even the most pompous stuck up in an intellectual elite, the, if once they come into the bar, they're just part of the bar. So and Frazier, he, 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 yes. he yes. joins 
Fraser eventually joins the Sibonese Liberation Army, man. He becomes Tanya. Um, Mike, did you have that one or another one? Yeah, I had that exact joke. Uh, Rob nailed it. And that's what All I love right. about it is it's it's not just the joke. I love the fact that you see Norm and Cliff are very approving of that answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, like, oh, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> But also that it it does really good character work for Diane, that Diane is trying to be sort of above this world, (laughs) where she's so much of a fish out of water that even Sumner fits in better than she does. (laughs) And I love that. I love that he can can dive in and go, oh, I know the answer to that question. (laughs) And he can interject on that. And she's just like. I love that because now that she's even more alienated than the person <laughs> who, I mean, her and Sumner were kind of looking at this like they're Jane Goodall and <laughs> suddenly <laughs> he's one of them and she's even more alone. And I, I think it does so much work to sort of prime her for being the character that sticks around. Omar, did you have another one? You know, I, it's funny. I had Sumner, but a different line. I thought they were very generous with him at the moment where Diane was feeling most anxious, where, Barbara, you know, he could tell that he was getting, you know, entranced by his visit with his ex-wife. And then she contacts him again to pick up the ring. And he, you could tell that he's jonesing to see her. And, like, his mind is a million miles away. And Diane's like, Summer, how about a kiss? And he's like, maybe we'll play it by ear. <laughs> Talking about him and Barbara, I thought it was, I thought it was great. I thought the comic timing was great. Um, I thought, again, it was very generous, like you guys said, to give some of the better lines to the guest star, um, and it was just, you know, the moment which he could use the most comforting, he is, like, on his way out. Uh, I just, that that killed me. I, I Those are great. I definitely, I had the cool hand Luke one was mine, absolutely. Mm. Um, and I'll just mention one other, just to kind of give it my backup, um, is when Coach is about to leave, and he's like, I, I think I'm going to finish my novel tonight. And, and they're like, still, or he's like, I, I go back home to my book. And, and Sam's like, still working on that novel. And he's like, you're writing a novel? He says, no, reading one. <laughs> he's been working on this for years. It's, yeah. so. uh, well, Omar, Mike, Rob, thank you very much again for being on this first episode of Cheerscast. This is a last call. Please uh, plug your shows. Rob, where else can people find you online? Well, I'm here on the network, on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am looking forward to creating a block of shows with <laughs> MASHcast and Cheerscast that people just cannot uh, turn away from. I fully expect somebody else on the network is going to start um, a Cosby Showcast because that show holds up. Oh. And, uh, you know, so, <laughs> it, I really, I'm super excited about the show. You've been talking about doing this for a while, and I, I totally understand, like, wanting to start a new show but you're just like oh my god this is such a commitment but i love cheers so thoroughly it's in my top five tv shows of all time and i'm very thrilled to be here on the first one and i look forward to every episode that you did this is going to be a blast well it was the fact that you started Mashcast was really what motivated <laughs> me i was like if you were going to do that i was going to do this in part because mash ended or yeah mash ended 35 years ago and cheers ended 25 years ago so we had to hit those yeah. anniversaries so so I, the timing was just too good to ignore. Mike, where else can people find you? Well, uh, my main venture is a show that I do with my tag team partner, Casey Doran, called Radio vs. the Martians. It's a pop culture discussion show. We also do another bi-monthly celebration of the cinematic juggernaut that is Arnold Schwarzenegger called Podcast La Vista Baby. You can find them on RadioVsTheMartians.com, PodcastLaVistaBaby.com, iTunes, Stitcher, all the regular places. And Omar, anything you want to mention? 
Uh, you know, I, I have guested on some of your illustrious podcasts in the past, including a couple stints on uh, Ryan's Give Me Those Star Wars podcast back in 2015 and 2016. Uh, as Rob just reminded me, we did a Film and Water podcast with him on Oliver Stone's movie Nixon uh, last summer, and I was just on his Pod Dylan extravaganza podcast um, uh, last <laughs> month. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm kind of intermittently uh, guesting on these shows when I can. I, I'm very lucky to know you guys who have such, uh, whose taste dovetail appears to dovetail with mine. Other than that, you know, I'm a lawyer in my day job. So if you or someone you know has been in an accident, uh, <laughs> give me a call. I keep asking you if you're a lawyer or a fixer. <laughs> I can be anything you want, my friend. Just give me a, give me a retainer and we'll talk. <laughs> All right, well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to Cheerscast. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can leave feedback on the Fire and Water Podcast Network website or on Facebook and Twitter. And until the next episode, we're closed. If I miss I'm on my way. Cheers. Yeah, just a sec. Is there a Rudy Pantu still here? That's you, coach. Speaking. <laughs> I like two traps and a scotch on the rocks. Okay. You know, there's a group over there arguing about the sweatiest movie ever made. A what? What movie did people sweat the most in? That's easy. Rocky 2. No, no, not even close. Body heat. Sweat City. Ben Hur. The boys in that galley sweat like pigs. Oh, no, alien, that's what. Alien! Buckets! This is the night before my wedding, and I'm in the middle of a sweat contest. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of sweat, here's a little known fact. Women have fewer sweat glands than men, but they're uh, larger and more active. Well, the human body, huh? <laughs> Consequently, they uh, sweat more. Really? Uh, how about you, miss? Uh, what are your perspiration patterns? Oh, Sumner. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. I've been sitting here listening to these men argue over the sweatiest movie ever made. Cool hand Luke. Hey! That's- <laughs>